Welcome to Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World, a production of the Vandenberg Coalition, where we shift the focus beyond the Indo-Pacific and into various regions around the world where the CCP continues to threaten the interests of the United States. The Vandenberg Coalition is a nonpartisan network dedicated to protecting American security, prosperity, and freedom through robust analysis of pressing national security threats and the promotion of a strong and proud American foreign policy. My name is Carrie Filippetti, and alongside leading experts, we are reshaping the conversation around the China challenge. In this episode, we speak with Peter Rao, a senior fellow and director of the Hudson Institute Center on Europe and Eurasia, as well as Ryan Tully, professional staff member at the House Committee on Armed Services and former senior director for Europe and Russia Affairs, on a bad romance, China's relationship with Europe. We hope you enjoy. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Great. Um, so I want to start just by level setting for the audience. Maybe we'll start with you, Peter. Um, how has the relationship in China evolved over recent years? We've seen how the relationship between China and the U.S. is very different than it was, say, 20 years ago. Um, how have the Europeans started to understand their their preferred relationship with China? Well, the relationship between Europe and China has fundamentally been a commercial one, which over time has developed certain dependencies. For the past seven years, Germany's which is the European Union and Europe's largest economies, biggest trading partner in the world has been China. Almost 10% of European Union exports every year go to China. At the same time, though, I think the political mood in Europe towards China has soured of late, really for four reasons. First, uh, the Chinese contempt toward Europe in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic raised eyebrows on the continent. Secondly, there was a tit-for-tat sanctions retaliatory escalation by the Chinese against Europe, which led the Europeans to freeze the comprehensive agreement on investment, which had been negotiated between Beijing and Brussels, but not yet implemented. Third, after the uh, full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, China's proximity to Russia and their unwillingness to denounce the Russians or move against them frustrated the Europeans. And I think more recently, the uh, new data that's coming out showing that the uh, European-Chinese trading relationship has been something of a poison chalice for the Europeans. It's quenched their economic thirst for many years, but now the Chinese are beginning to supplant them not only in China, and partially because they've learned from the Europeans, but also because of intellectual property theft. And they're supplanting the Europeans in markets closer to home. In early September, there was a report out by The Economist showing how a major percentage of uh, European automobile parts uh, are now coming from China. The Economist reported this, and that, I think, or such a crown jewel of the European economy is worrying for the Europeans and the Germans in particular. So to summarize, I'd say the commercial relationship has been the backbone of it, but now the political overlay of that has deteriorated of late. So I, I actually want to follow up on that with respect to Germany in particular. Um, so uh, Germany released its first ever China strategy um, in July, uh, and it simultaneously calls China a partner, con uh, competitor, and uh, systemic rival. Um, so what do you think that says about Germany and other European countries and how they're portraying the nature of the China threat? That description, that tripartite description of China goes back to the European Union, the European Commission under Jean-Claude Juncker's release of a strategic outlook paper in March of 2019. The drafter of that, in fact, was another German, Martin Selmayr. And uh, when I spoke to sinologists in Europe about this three-part description, uh, in the ensuing years, they would crack the joke that it allows each European country basically to pick whatever definition uh, they would like. And there is a certain inconsistency in it. Um, it's an attempt, I think, to have it both ways. And it's a tacit acknowledgement that there is a 
economic dependency on China, even if systemically China as an authoritarian, increasingly dictatorial country under Xi Jinping has fundamentally different values than the Europeans espouse, not to mention different interests, and tried to overturn the Western-led order around the world. So uh, I think it's probably an attempt to have it both ways, and it's an attempt to cooperate on areas like, say, climate change or global public health, which is somewhat I ironic given that China's performance in the World uh, Health Organization in the wake of COVID and stymieing uh, those investigations. It's been uh, an attempt to maintain trade links, again, despite China's rather aggressive action towards partners like Australia. Uh, it's, it's, it's an attempt to maintain links with a major player uh, in the global arena, while at the same time recognizing that not all is smooth sailing anymore in the relationship. Ryan, as, as somebody who has worked both um, in the executive branch and in the legislative branch, how do you sort of evaluate which European countries do you think are doing a lot in terms of recognizing the China threat and which countries do you think maybe could be doing more to recognize it or reduce some of their dependencies on China? Well, I, I don't think that it's it's um, particularly uh, surprising that those who recognize the China threat are those who actually recognize the Russia threat and have been dealing with the Russia threat uh, so aggressively for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years. Those in the East recognize what living under a totalitarian dictatorship is like. They, they've seen firsthand how um, a superpower can kind of rape um, their land, can steal from them, can abuse them, and can keep them down. And so when they've been successful in pushing back in Russia, they've learned those lessons. And I think they're starting, they've been the first to wake up to the real China threat. Mm -hmm. It's those that are kind of in the Western portion of Europe that have the really strong economic ties, those uh, ties that Peter mentioned, the the Brussels, the Germanys, the the French, um, that that have been less willing to take on China, that have been more worried about repercussions for being aggressive with China, that have um, been more reticent to call out human rights abuses, Uyghurs, things like that, uh, Chinese military buildup, Chinese nuclear expansion. And so you're seeing a very, you know, aggressive um, Eastern Europe, part of the Poles, the Lithuanians in particular, and then you're kind of seeing others kind of come along, um, I think is kind of where the status of it is. Peter, anything to add? Well, I would just say, I entirely agree with Ryan in that sometimes we speak of Europe as a monolith and the European Union in particular, I think, leads us to view Europe as a continent, projects out into the world, but really it's more of a mosaic. And uh, this applies not only regionally, but actually to complete the answer about Germany, also within countries, within sectors, uh, the German economics minister, Robert Habeck, who's a green, is known to be hawkish on political mm -hmm. economy views towards the Germans. The German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, who represents the Social Democratic Party, which has a long tradition of outreach towards Russia and also China, has an entirely different view. And so uh, perhaps in the case of Germany, where uh, Angela Merkel never took the words rival into her mouth, took many trips uh, to China during her time as um, Chancellor of Germany. Now we're seeing, I think, in Germany, at least some debate and discussion between the various ministries between uh, the business sector and the public sector, and also within the business sector between the major multinationals, which have been much more addicted on China, and the small, medium-sized enterprises, which have traditionally constituted the backbone of the German um, economy. And you know what I find interesting about Chinese strategy in Europe is that they really have insinuated themselves or attempted to addict onto themselves the largest industry uh, in the largest country 
within Europe, and that is the auto industry within Germany, within Europe. And so uh, because it, they've seen that as having outsized influence on European politics, they've really sought to build that relationship over time. And uh, it's made it difficult to, I think, move the Europeans on China questions. And to that point, like if you had asked me this question a year or so ago, I would have said I've been really worried about the Italians. But over the last two, three months, you've really seen them take on one belt on the road, throw that over the board. Hopefully, this uh, by the end of this year, um, you, you've seen the Brits, who were excellent over the last four to five years. There's the early September Cleverly trip. There's the new defense minister, who we're not really sure what his views are going to on China are going to be. But Ben Wallace was great, um, and so there's a lot of soul searching that's going on in some of these countries for, for what their China policy should be, and which is fair because we're doing a lot of that here too. It's almost amusing because I remember in the lead up to the Italian elections, the talk in Washington was of the new Mussolini taking yep. power. And George the Italian elections too, right? Like yeah. the first couple of months. She's turned out to be an ideological dream, transatlantic uh, through and through. Uh, and uh, in my view, taking the correct position on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. She's showing a tough line on the uh, on the China issue. And she's managed to, I think, govern on the center-right in ways that uh, promotes a healthy conservatism while keeping some of its more pernicious qualities at bay. Meanwhile, uh, the man who was feted at every conference in Europe and received standing ovations when sort of the epistemic elites, the epistemic communities of some of the progressive left get together, Emmanuel Macron uh, goes to, to Beijing and, and totally stuffs Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, into economy class. This is a metaphor of sorts. Puts her on the sideline while he himself and Xi Jinping um, have their have their have their talks. So that's uh, a bit of a, a bit of an irony, I think, over the past several months on China policy. And it's tough to kind of overplay just how devastating that trip was on Capitol Hill, and just how it was repercussions across Republicans and Democrats. Everybody kind of noticed it and kind of took taken back by just how forward leaning. I know not use other metaphors that. Um, that Macron was on that China trip. Right. So do we think other countries will be following suit from from Italy's example? Or is this sort of you think it's going to be a, an important step, but, you know, other countries aren't necessarily going to take it on board? Well, I'd say Italy is unique in that it's the only G7 country, which is part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And the Biden administration has put tremendous weight on the G7. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, likes to describe it as the steering committee of their free world. And so it is significant that Italy, the third biggest economy in the Eurozone, is uh, apparently trying to delicately exit the Belt and Road Initiative without incurring too much wrath from Beijing. Having said that, some of the smaller economies of Central and Eastern Europe have already begun to move away from Beijing. The Chinese uh, launched a format called the Central, Eastern, Central and Eastern Europe Plus One format years ago, which grew to 17 plus one in total. The Baltic states, however, have all exited. It's now down to 14 plus one. So it's the Chinese basically trying to divide Eastern uh, from Western Europe, the Eastern Europeans looking for investments and support. And uh, it has basically no momentum and is only attended at relatively low levels now, these regular meetings by the Eastern Europeans. So I think uh, China has lost quite a bit of momentum in that part of Europe. That's owing to, again, coronavirus pandemic response, but also in particular China's uh, unlimited partnership with Vladimir Putin in the lead up to the war, and then in particular during the war, its support for Putin. So I think we've seen movement there. Still, um, Olaf Scholz, when he traveled to Beijing, brought a big business delegation, added, as did Emmanuel Macron on his 
a trip to uh, to China and from the luxury brands that we know well from France and Italy all the way to German machine goods, there still is an attempt to, I think, maintain strong economic links to China while at the same time balancing some of the risks that come along with that. And on the, the 14 plus one, 17 plus one kind of format where we've been successful in US policies where we offered uh, alternatives to different Chinese either investments, um, technologies, and the Three Cs initiative is, is one such that's been really successful. I think the Greeks are now going to be joining it, and so it's, it's actually getting a little bit more momentum too. So that's been nice encountering. So um, in in many countries um, around the world, we'll sort of in these episodes, we've asked, um, you know, what is uh, what is the United States sort of asking the countries to do as it relates to China? And sometimes we're asking them to choose between us and and China. Sometimes we're sort of like maintaining this balance of power kind of relationship. Um, Ryan, what is sort of U.S., um, the, the American approach to these other European countries and what we're insisting that their relationship with China looks like? Or do we not really make those in, insistence? I mean, I, I can speak to what we did during the Trump administration. Sure. And, and it's harder for me to say kind of, the Obama Biden folks are kind of doing now, but um, I should have said the Biden folks. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was intentional. Uh, it, it, I it could have been a Freudian slip. I mean, you know, um, it, it is uh, the the Trump NSC when at least I'll speak to when I was there. We had a China in Europe strategy, and this strategy was where we identified um, key um, industries, key projects, key uh, investments that China was trying to make in Europe with key national security implications. You could think 5G, you could think semiconductors, you could think ports. Um, and we did these mainly through diplomatic means by by reaching out to countries and ha- trying to understand what they were hearing from their Chinese counterparts, but also like using IC methods to figure out where China was trying to invest and take advantage of European partners. And systematically, uh, each country, um, we went to them individually and we said, hey, these are some issues that are really concerning for us where China is trying to make inroads into your country. And these are the reasons why it's concerning. And you couldn't just say China bad. Right. They're making these investments. You had to point out, no, they're they're trying to get into your 5G um, for espionage reasons. They're trying to uh, set up these Confucius Institutes to manipulate your uh, policies. They're setting up police stations, which aren't really police stations, but are really just uh, foreign intelligence services operating on European soil. Um, to monitor dissidents and uh, to uh, crack down on their families back home. So we, we had to lay out privately um, what the real national security implications were for China investing in these technologies and try and pull them back. And, and where we were successful is where we, like I said, where we offered alternatives, Western alternatives, not always U.S. alternatives, but uh, European, often European alternatives. Uh, there was a great Wall Street Journal story out a couple months ago about the um, a port, Rieka, that China was trying to invest in and was trying to take over and keep port that NATO supplies flowed through. Um, uh, it was um, a, there were issues where China has misused their management of ports in the past. Um, and so we highlighted those to the Croatians and uh, it, it was a real success story. And things like that, things like uh, keeping Huawei out of 5G backbones in places like the UK. Um, so those are the type of things that we did during the Trump administration, um, educational things privately um, and systematically going to specific issue areas and saying, this is where China's trying to take advantage. I don't know that that's happening now, um, but we also did a lot of public education. Mm-hmm. 
um, exposing what just what Confucius Institutes really were. And Matt Pondra talked about this endlessly um, in public statements. Uh, Mike Pompeo did the same thing. Robert O'Brien. We talked about um, how the Chinese were uh, modernizing their military. Ro uh, Marshall Billingsley gave speeches to the to the NAC and to every European country that would take a meeting with him talking about their nuclear modernization and just why they were doing that so that way they could not be uh, held hostage by the West or by um, our nuclear umbrella. And um, I'm sure there are other examples, but that's those are the things that we did. And it was kind of, it was actually very successful. I think what you're seeing right now is you're seeing a Europe that's kind of a little bit confused as to what our China policy is. You're seeing the Secretary of Commerce, the Secretary of the Treasury, go to Beijing um, and make some very strange comments about just how truthful and forthright the Chinese were and how they said all the right things. And um, you're kind of left wondering, well, what's the U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis China? Are, are we trying to strategically decouple? Are we trying to pull back in certain areas? Um, there are China hawks who are in the administration, right? There are the Kirk Campbells of the world who are very forward-leaning on China, but then you have the, the Jake Sullivans, the and Yellen's, um, the, the Commerce Secretary, who are kind of seem like to trying to have their cake and eat it too. And so the Europeans are confused. Um, I'm confused, to tell you the truth. So, um, right, yeah, Peter, what have you seen sort of in the current administration on this? Well, I think my critique of the administration, and I would just start there because it's been a bit frustrating to me, is that we've accrued enormous political capital with the Europeans because we've bailed them out in Ukraine, were it not for American and British assistance together with some of our smaller but very important Eastern European allies. Who knows, perhaps Putin would have been through Kyiv in three days and moved all the way to Lviv within a few weeks. It's hard to say, but clearly the U.S. was essential in, in helping the Ukrainians um, fight, and then our policy could catch up to help them actually be able to push back the uh, Russians over time. By catch up, I mean delivering more weapon systems and more sanction support to the Ukrainians early on. But uh, we've also accrued political capital by adopting that same uh, definition you talked about earlier, Carrie, which is partner, competitor, and rival. I think Secretary Blinken in his confirmation hearings used similar language. Um, at the very outset of the administration, we've launched a trade and technology council with uh, the Europeans, which is to adjudicate a lot of the future technologies. That's in a way a concession to the Europeans, because if we think about our two economies, the United States has become very impressive in digital technologies, frontiers of next generation economies. The Europeans are very good at making widgets. And so we're holding a council, a format in which we're discussing all of the regulatory and other aspects of our economy um, rather than theirs. But all of this political capital uh, it should be deployed at some point. <laughs> International relations is not just a, a matter of getting along with your friends and allies. It's to advance the American national interest. And so I would like to see more of a competitive spirit in pushing the Europeans for the types of things that Ryan was talking about. The only real example of this that I can see that has impressed me is the administration working with the Japanese and the Dutch on a semiconductor export uh, uh, process. So ASML, which makes lithography machines in the Netherlands, and then um, the Japanese have important technologies in this, working together in a concerted effort to ensure that key machinery does not go to China and get into Chinese hands. But beyond that, what painful steps have we actually pressed and pushed and encouraged and nudged and cajoled our closest allies to take? And there, I don't think it's that uh, Ryan hasn't been paying attention. I just don't see a lot of them. And I would like to see more of, I think, 
an edge and a competitive spirit on those issues. When I went to Europe, I'll just add this, during the Trump administration, for all of President Trump's faults, I can tell you that in the foreign ministries, I repeatedly would get um, comments from senior officials about how the Americans had been there. They'd pushed on Huawei. They made certain asks and demands. I don't quite get that now um, in the Biden era. And the reason why it was successful- Excuse me, the Biden-Obama era. And the reason why it was successful when we did it in a lot of ways, at least in my view, is because um, we agreed to put the same limits on U.S. companies doing business with China. Um, so we're not going to um, disadvantage U.S. companies, and we're going to ask that you do the same things with the European companies. So Semiconductor is a great example, but um, Rolls-Royce and GE um, uh, aircraft engines is, is another one. Let's, let's do this together. Let's push back on China together. We won't allow these sales to go through if you don't. And so that way we weren't giving uh, a competitive edge to one of our two uh, companies. And that, that was a reason why we were able to kind of stem that flow of goods and, and technology. Uh, the foreign direct product role is, is, is another such example of thing uh, to the Trump administration success story. But uh, it's, it's really concerning to actually see some of the stories about Huawei these days and how they've been let up off the mat and how their profits are starting to get better and how they're uh, starting to find workarounds for their chips and things like that. And to get seven nanometer processing technologies over the last week or so in well, early September, new stories. Um, but yeah, we, we, we went full bore on Huawei and it's it's been really been one of the more devastating things to see them get up off the mat and start to, to, to get healthy so I, I want to focus on the on the Ukraine question because I think it's impossible to talk about China and Europe without talking about Ukraine. And um, Peter, as you mentioned, um, many of these countries are sort of reawakened to the China threat by facing the the Russia threat more more directly. Um, you actually had a uh, foreign affairs article where you talked about this, and one of the um, one of the main questions out there is the sort of U.S. military supply problem. Um, so some have argued to cut back munition deliveries and other military aid for Ukraine so that they can reallocate it to Taiwan. Um, you argue that the focus should not be on diverting supplies from from one region and, and, and sending them to another and that the real issue lies in strengthening the U.S. defense industrial base. Um, so how can the United States, is there a way of the United States sort of working with Europe on this, either as it relates directly to Ukraine or in general, um, so that we are sufficiently prepared to confront Taiwan or confront China in case of a, a Taiwanese invasion, but also able to, um, you know, to to fight for and on behalf of um, U- Ukraine with our with our military aid. This is another area where I think political will leadership is at the crux of the issue. Uh, it's taken months um, for production to pick up key weapon systems in Europe and in the United States. Just to take the example of Germany, given its extraordinary industrial power and might, uh, the first year and a half of uh, the war in Ukraine was basically lost owing to uh, an ineffective German Minister of Defense, Christina Lambrecht, who was chosen on account of party politics and trying to balance the cabinet between various party factions. Uh, at the time in the German system, becoming Minister of Defense was almost like, uh, if not a political death sentence, at least like uh, a, a less than desirable post. You'd rather be something related to other ministries like the finance ministry or, mm-hmm. or economics ministry. In the U.S. context, that sounds a little bit off because I think the Pentagon is considered you know, one of our most important, if not most, most important agency. So uh, I think the new uh, Secretary of Defense, the new Minister of Defense, Boris Pistorius, is known for being a, an effective bureaucrat, a manager, which the German system needs. Its procurement agency has been 
starved over the years as Germany's military has become basically a disaster relief force. And so really putting political weight and power into the bureaucracy, the force production levels up to issue the contracts, to encourage industry to move forward is, I think, at the heart of the matter, both in the U.S. and in in Europe. And um, uh, I don't think there are silver bullets. There's debates about how to procure, how to spend money. I don't think this is a time for protectionism or trying to build up your defense industry. I think it's a time for building up in the sense that you're prejudicing certain industries over readily available ammunition elsewhere, which has been a debate in Europe for some time. I just think we need to buy as much as we can and build up our defense industry through investments and political uh, will. And uh, through that, I think, by awakening the tremendous industrial might of the West, we can win this competition. I mean, the combined economic weight of Europe and the United States roughly hits around 40 trillion US dollars. Russia's, Russia's GDP is under 2 trillion. And so, uh, granted, this might be considered for the Russians or for the Kremlin an existential battle and for us a peripheral one. But if we only marshal a portion of that industrial power behind this conflict compared to the Russians, I think we're bound to be uh, in a good position. I, I think a key point to make is is that Ukraine didn't cause the crisis, isn't the right word, but the problems that we're having in the U.S. and European industrial base, but it definitely has exposed them. And and the wake-up call that Ukraine has given the U.S. and Europe, I, I think, will eventually pay dividends for um, any Taiwan scenario that'll come. Um, the the investments that we're making here, the predictability that we're providing to our uh, defense contractors for orders, I, I think has improved things. Some of the investments, particularly that the Army's made in production capabilities, I, I think has been helpful over the last year or so. Um, there are still places and munitions where we need to improve. Um, and there are things where the Europeans can do more too. Um, but I, I will point out that I think in the most recent supplemental request, it, it was a mistake not to include some sort of some sort of Chinese funding uh, or counter China funding or and or um, a PDA USAAI type of amount of funding for Taiwan. Uh, I think that's going to be a real missed opportunity and um, is actually probably going to make it harder to to get the supplemental across the finish line. Um, but I I do think one of the things that we're seeing. Um, is some real leadership by certain European countries. The Poles, for instance, it, it, it's kind of hard to ask them to do more. Um, there was the early September um, announcement that they'd be buying, I think, 24 Patriot launch units, um, a number of Pac-3 and MSE missiles. Um, they're talking about doing co-production of Javelin. They're buying attack helicopters. They, I was just over in Poland and saw... Um, Part of the 123, I think it was, M1A ones that they're getting. Um, there are more on the way in the next couple of years. And so, I mean, be, be like Poland. And, and it's kind of hard to ask um, countries to do more than the Balts have done. I mean, they, they literally emptied their their stocks. Yeah. The way they view it is is every javelin that hits a Russian tank is one less one that they'll have to deal with in Vilnius or Talent. Um, and so it, it's been a... It's been really impressive to see what certain Eastern European countries have done. And the other thing that we've done and that is will continue to pay dividends is increase co-production and co-development of certain weapon systems. We have um, some issues here in our defense industrial base, getting the right workers to certain do certain jobs um, and hiring issues. Um, we can solve that by kind of 
doing co-production, allowing U.S. stocks to be built in certain European countries. And if you allow your, those type of stocks to be built for the European theater and us to develop um, and uh, ship those out to the Pacific, then you can kind of have a nice balance. Um, so I think co-production and co-development is going to be a huge, huge, not silver bullet, but huge part of the solving this problem. One other issue I would just flag is that we have thought about our own defense industrial base as reinforcing our own military needs and those of our allies. Um, but what we haven't really considered, and I think this showed up in early choke points for Ukraine, is if third countries were not used to or adept or supplied by NATO or Western Standard military kit, go to war against our adversaries, how we can supply them. Um, and that, I think, you know, showed up in a dramatic way because the Ukrainians were just fighting differently than, say, NATO would fight a war with Russia. And so their need for ground-based fires was just much more dramatic and larger than, say, the U.S., which would fight more of an air campaign and try to, you know, achieve air superiority early in a conflict. So that also, I think, requires, I think, at least some consideration as we build out our defense industrial base um, and 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 how we how we think about choke points and supply chains and all the rest. And part of the other problem is that we've been bound by the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty until 2019 when the Trump administration got out of it. You have Ukraine and a lot of European partners now begging for long-range precision fires. Long-range precision fires that we really don't have right now because we were bound by that treaty. China's got thousands of these type of weapons. Um, Russia, because they cheated, has a large supply, had a large supply of these weapons. And so we're really got out of that treaty in 2019 and are now really just starting to get in production of, of uh, things like PRISM that'll be really battlefield game changers when we can produce it in um, substantial quantities. Um, there are sort of two aspects that I see to this argument that you know we hear often that Europe should be doing more. So one you've already addressed, which is this idea that Europe should be spending more, giving more. And as you've pointed out, there are many European countries uh, that spend right far more than... Um, then the U.S. is a percentage of GDP. The Baltic countries have given basically all of their stocks uh, to Ukraine. So that's that's one piece of it. The second piece of it, I think, is this uh, this question about where will the Europeans be in the instance of a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan? And will they actually support us and help us in that? Um, I, I'm not sure if we if we know the answers to this yet, but how do both of you kind of see that question? Do you suspect that our European partners will be willing to to join us in Taiwan's defense, or do you think there will be um, some reluctance to do so? I, I think it's an open question. I, I think there will, just like there are is with Ukraine, there will be certain countries that are better than others. I, I worry about kind of what the EU policy writ large will be, and how many people defer will defer to Brussels on that. Will will they allow, or will the EU kind of sanction um, munition supplies going to Taiwan or to Asian countries to counter China. And I honestly don't know the answer to that. And um, I, I hope that that changes. Or... I think that the basic coalition in Washington, this is the assumption for a war, if one breaks out over Taiwan and the U.S. chooses to engage, would be limited. This is in terms of the military fight the Philippines, Japan, the U.S., Australia, and uh, that's essentially it. I think there are even questions about um, about the scope and level of participation of some of those countries. Would the Australians basically just do what amounts to some 
securing of supply lanes around Hawaii as a way of almost uh, avoiding the immediate fight with the Philippines based on the agreement we struck for basing in, in the northern Philippines actually get involved uh, in a dramatic way. But if that, that I think it's an Asian Pacific alliance of sorts that would get involved in the war. Having said that, uh, if the Europeans would like to remain equidistant, given that the economic stakes are far greater than what they faced uh, pulling themselves off of the Russian economy and Russian hydrocarbons, uh, it will be a rude awakening because if there is a war over Taiwan and if the United States, as President Biden on four occasions now has said, would get involved in defense of Taiwan, then uh, there would be presumably a serious war on our hands with lots of dead Americans. And if the Europeans value the transatlantic alliance, which I think they do, uh, and they, they realize that it's a good deal for them as it is for us, then they will at the very least take some of the economic steps that they've taken to date against Russia toward China. Now, the question is, what are the parameters of those economic sanctions and steps they're willing to take? Is it basically bounded by what we've seen in the, in the Russian case? Are they prepared to go beyond that? Um, beyond uh, that specific question, there are also issues of, of European military support actions they could take from securing supply lines for the United States. The French consider themselves an Indo-Pacific power, New Caledonia, French Polynesia, et cetera. So there's at least a territory there that could be used as a stray for intelligence gathering. These are all just ideas I'm throwing out there. But the core of the fight is not going to be Europe militarily. I don't think anyone expects that because in the end, uh, Europeans don't really have the capabilities and NATO has tight geographic parameters that confine it to the North Atlantic, and they would not be obliged to get involved. But you can bet if an American aircraft carrier is sunk in the Western Pacific and Europe says, well, this isn't our fight, we're equidistant, good luck selling NATO to like Iowans or to like Oklahomans or to New Yorkers, anybody in the US. And I think they would see that quickly and for their own good would probably take steps to support the United States. And I would say that over the last couple of years, I think you've seen NATO get better when it comes to vis-a-vis China. Uh, I think it was during the Trump administration that, and I think it was mostly Pottinger, but um, was able to get a, some lines on the Chinese threat in the first NATO communique. Mm-hmm. And the one that you saw out of the most recent was, I think, like 12 paragraphs long and just the threat posed by China. So it's it's gotten better. You, you were We saw um, NATO Deputy Secretary General uh, Joanna in 2020 call out the Chinese military buildup, particularly on the nuclear threat. Um, and so Europeans, there, there's more awareness of what the threat is, I would think, and there's more willingness to talk about it, um, which which is a positive step. Yeah, cool. I would just add, I, I think it's healthy for the Europeans to be militarily engaged now in the Indo-Pacific. We've seen Germany send a frigate and uh, some fighter jets. The French uh, spend a lot of time, obviously, in the Indo-Pacific. The British sailed east of Suez with their new aircraft carrier. And it's important because it allows them to develop a common strategic outlook, as Ryan was mentioning, with the United States. It isn't just Americans at the Hudson Institute with foe in front of their mouth talking about the China threat, but the Australians who've been hammered by sanctions. Hong Kong is no longer a free city, but is basically now uh, entirely under Chinese writ. Southeast Asian states are are coerced by the Chinese and say um, river disputes um, and on and on. I mean the list the list extends to recent Filipino Chinese clashes and over the Scarborough Shoal, Japanese Chinese disputes, and so as the Europeans make uh, so, sort of sort of metaphorical port calls and speak with Asian officials 
who share a common liberal democratic outlook on the world and the nature of the Chinese threat is made clear to them, I think that will seep into their own strategies, into their own outlook, and hopefully move them in a positive direction. And I presume this is why NATO has invited to its summits uh, some of our Asian Pacific allies to participate in discussions and conversations. And NATO was going to open a liaison office in Tokyo, and it was really- Walk by yeah. President Macron. Thank you. But just, but just one. Right. So like there was, it, was, it was headed in the right direction. And, right. But yeah, you're right. So it sounds like EU were sort of skeptical of as a as a multilateral body, but NATO might have some significant role to play here. Well, yeah, I was going to say significant or some role. Yeah, um, they'll they'll have to if that, that scenario plays out, they will have to take up the mantle of being the security guarantee for Europe, um, and will have to be the ones who blunt the Russian threat. Um, it would I would hope that they would also be willing to. Um, join in economic sanctions uh, and to join in providing weapons uh, to whichever countries are under attack. Um, but like I said, remains to be seen. Those are the things where I would count on the most. I think some specific, as I mentioned, European discrete intelligence and military capabilities might be in play. NATO itself as an organization is not even involved in the war in Ukraine. And that's all been run through the Ramstein format and uh, ad hoc coalition of countries which comprise the NATO member states. But NATO and a lot of the institutional infrastructure we've built through NATO has not been mobilized for the war. So I hardly expect it to be mobilized in the case of a war over Taiwan. And a lot of the economic competencies sit on the other side of Brussels with the European Union. So if there are to be sanctions packages, those would be European Union competencies. And in the end, uh, when we look to military matters, France and Britain have always been countries who coordinate things on when it comes to like a strike package against Bashar Assad when he uses chemical weapons. But when the Greek economy was heading south some 13 years ago, everyone looked to Berlin. It was Angela Merkel and Wolfgang Schäuble, the finance minister, who were the key deciders. So when it comes to an economic sanctions package in the event of war over Taiwan, I think a lot of eyes will be looking to Berlin, which has the closest economic relationship with Beijing to take some of their guidance. And they'll be getting pressure, Germany would, would be, from the Eastern Europeans and others. But in the end, I think it's it's Berlin channeling Brussels that would make a lot of the decisions or have the most important uh, uh, part to say about scope of economic response. Is there any frustration in Europe um, about the rhetoric coming out of the United States? I mean, so this is something that I dealt with a lot when, when I was working on Cuba and Venezuela. Every time we would say something with strong language, the response from Europe was oftentimes, well, you guys are pushing for war because you keep talking about war. When re in reality, the sanctions and things like that were a means to pivot us away from eventually needing to use any kind of kinetic option. Do you see the same with Europeans today? Are there any concerns that the language that we're using is is encouraging China to arm itself further and, and, and so on? Or do you think that they're pretty sure now on, on the Chinese threat, uh, independent of what the U.S. is saying? I, I think they get our position, and I think they understand why we think it's a threat. Um, as far as what our policy is, what we're asking them to do, I'll, I'll go back to what I said a little bit earlier. I, I think there's general confusion mm -hmm. on it, um, and that they're really not sure where we're trying to go with China. Are we trying to strategically decouple in certain areas? Are we trying to retard their growth in, in others? Um, I, I, I think that there's large some confusion about where we're trying to go with China right now, and I'm, I'm one of those two. When Nancy Pelosi visited... Taiwan, the European foreign ministers did join Secretary Blinken in putting out a statement defending her right to go to Taiwan. And um, 
that I think in the eyes of the Europeans was probably the most provocative step that we've taken in recent years. Kevin McCarthy handled uh, the Taiwan issue very deftly in meeting the the uh, the president on the transit through the U.S. at the uh, at the Reagan um, uh, Library in Simi Valley. Beyond that, you know, I would say it's it's hard for the Europeans to worry about American hawkishness when cabinet officials are flying to Beijing to genuflect uh, in front of their Chinese counterparts. And beyond that, some of the language the Europeans have developed from that tripartite definition you mentioned earlier, all the way to Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president's description of de-risking has been picked up quickly by American officials. I will say on background in uh, speaking to European officials and some of the capitals, I have heard some worries about self-fulfilling prophecies Mm -hmm. and that leading to conflict. But the administration has, uh, I think, very much so tried to forge a common line with the Europeans, a time diluting and watering down what might be a more robust American leadership position. And so it's hard to imagine there being a great deal of frustration because what more could you ask of Sullivan, Blinken, and kind of the key portfolio holders of the China file? You, you mentioned um, this language of, of de-risking, um, which has sort of come to replace the language about decoupling. I think it's more or less, and we had this conversation on our um, economic episode, more or less the same thing. It's just in terms of, you know, which one makes you feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, but my question is, what are the areas in where in which you see European countries um, successfully beginning to de-risk or decouple? And what are the areas that you think are most important for them to do so, so they don't wind up in the same situation they were um, when it came to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Sort of pitch it to either of you. It's a good question. Um, I, I, I think in a lot of ways, when we started waking up to the China threat about, was it 10, 15 years ago, but even really starting to do something about it maybe six to eight years ago, um, what we saw, and we've been able to cut China off from certain key technologies, the direct product role for Huawei is one, semiconductors is another, uh, airplane engines is, is another. Um, the, the, there are several. AI technologies is another one that's on the on the forefront now of discussion. Uh, not being able to use certain algorithms and and things like that. What we've seen China do, because they're really not a country that innovates, they're, they're not that entrepreneurial spirit that that's here and, and drives their economy. Um, they look to steal, yeah, economic espionage and predatory um, type of practices. And we've been able to do a decent job here in the United States. Um, protecting certain key industries from that, our dense industrial base, um, educating suppliers about the threat of non-traditional actors showing up at their door or at different bases and knocking asking for tourists. Um, but what they've done is they've pivoted. They didn't decide to innovate themselves. They didn't change their culture because it would be really hard to do so. They, they pivoted and they, they turned to Europe. And they've looked at what key things there are in Europe that they can then prey on and then look to incorporate into their, their own weapon systems. So what we need to do is we need, we need to help do to Europe what we did to the United, what the United States did here is, is educate them, is to really um, show them why they need to, you know, cut off Confucius Institutes. There, there are still dozens of Confucius Heck, Europeans fund a lot of these Confucius Institutes that are over there. Um, these these police stations to to expose what kind of how China uses non traditional actors to to collect on on European security and to cut off uh, what they're doing as far as trying to get key technologies and um, things like that. 
the Europeans, um, to use that word if that exists, um, have been, I think, very worried about decoupling as suggesting a broad-based cutoff in European-Chinese trade, whereas de-risking to them sounds much more narrowly tailored. It's, as uh, Jake Sullivan puts it, small guards with high fences or small yards with high fences. But, you know, speaking with a Daimler executive a few months ago, um, uh, you know, they're worried that even small, carefully tailored steps will ultimately unravel the relationship and lead to decoupling. An example being the Chinese recently have been raiding a lot of auditing firms and cracking down on information flows in China. So companies like Daimler, um, which are active in China, are no longer able to see some of the inputs into their products, which may lead to them running afoul of things like Xinjiang Forced Labor Prevention Act. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, I think they're worried because they're flying blind in an airplane near mountain ranges that they might crash land. So uh, uh, as the Daimler executive put it, uh, put it, you know, if you're asking us to pull out, given our dependency, you're asking us to commit suicide for fear of death. Um, they're going to take some risks, uh, the bigger firms, but uh, for the smaller ones, it might lead to decoupling altogether. All, all As for the broader question of what de-risking should mean, I mean, the Europeans have begun to think about uh, a process of developing a way to develop independence on raw materials, just as the U.S. sees certain raw materials from rare earths, which used to be sort of a niche topic 15 years ago. I remember at grad school uh, uh, working on this to now being common parlance. But um, there are other areas. We have a CFIUS process in the U.S., the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. The European Commission has developed uh, a similar CFIUS toolkit, but toolkits are not mandatory for the member states. They're just guidance, information sharing exercises, et cetera. Um, I'd like to see uh, a much more aggressive screening of what goes into Europe. I'd also like to see Europe screen more aggressively what goes out, meaning Europe should not be aiding the military modernization of China. I mean, Kissingerian sort of triangulation teaches us that if there are three powers, we want to be in the two. And there really are only three major economic powers in the world right now, the US, North America, Europe, and East Asia. So we should win over the Europeans on these issues where their economics, their power and technologies and innovation, all the rest is not strengthening Chinese efforts to take on the United States and the Western uh, order. So that includes, um, that includes looking at um, export investment rules. Um, it means um, being more careful about co-science and innovation funding with the Chinese, et cetera. And I think in all those areas, we need to urge not just the European Commission to begin to take steps that aren't binding on the member states, but actually work with the member states also to put in place more robust um, um, binding regulations on these issues. One of the, one of the things that we, we in the Europeans could probably do better on is, because the Europeans really care about it, and what Americans really care about is our privacy. Just really understanding and educating just how different Chinese, allowing different Chinese entities into your economies will expose your citizens, their communications, um, their, their monetary transactions to the Chinese Communist Party. And I, I think if, if Europeans and Americans really understood about how um, China goes about doing that uh, and uses certain benign seeming applications, TikTok, Baidu, um, Huawei ZTE to, to gain access to information, uh, personal information, then I, I think we could probably move the needle on public opinion and try to keep them out of uh, certain key areas. 
How much do you see human rights factoring into Europe's approach to China? I mean, we often think about the Europeans as as um, uh, really emphatic about the role of human rights in the world. They're supporting, you know, um, the ICC and other other um, organizations like that. Um, but what strikes me as interesting is we have the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act, which has actually done a decent job in many cases of preventing those um, uh, supply chains um, that have used slave labor from coming to the United States. But Europe really hasn't done the same. And so what you know, the kind of labor that we're seeing in, in Xinjiang is just as bad as it always was because those supply chains are just now being redirected towards towards Europe. So how do you see human rights factoring into this process? Or is it really just they're worried about the sort of economic coercion of China? They're worried about, you know, what their partner, the United States, thinks? It's a part of the conversation, but I, I think it's definitely much, not nearly as high up on the priority list as we'd like it to be or where it should be. Uh, take Turkey as an example, right? It, it's in many ways views itself as the defender of uh, the Muslim population in the Muslim world, right? That big brother that'll always stick up for for Muslims that are being oppressed. But yet you have Chinese Uyghurs that are have they're being rounded up in concentration camps that are being forced sterilized. That there's a genocide going on against them, and you won't have uh, Turkish leaders saying much of anything about it, mainly because of the amount that China's propping up the lira. So it, it is part of the conversation, but it should be should be much much more. Well, or in the case of Saudi Arabia, custodian of the two holy mosques, is forging an important partnership with the Chinese while those same Muslims you're just describing are being interned in concentration camps, which I think just gets at the broader point that uh, a lot of these calculations are based on realpolitik and Gotta get your power dynamics. Right. And, um, you know, Germans are very sensitive to uh, being embarrassed on human rights given that they perpetrated the Holocaust. But, um, you know, not only is the Uyghur Force Prevention Labor Act um, not in place, but some German firms have been forced to settle or open production in Shenzhen as a condition of being in China in order to normalize uh, China's Xinjiang policy. So, uh, you know, I don't think that human rights is a cudgel. It's a way of, of encouraging um, allies to do the right thing. It's a way of letting them uh, distinguish between the United States and China, and that's always important. Um, at the same time, BASF, um, which is an obviously energy-intensive industry, chemicals company, recently invested uh, uh, billions of dollars in a new plant in China because it can no longer get cheap Russian hydrocarbons in Europe, but it can in China, which isn't participating in the sanctions uh, regime. So I think it only goes so far, um, but it does... You know, it does play a role, and it's always important when wagging fingers by moralizers is kind of, you know, stuffed in your face that take the distinction between the U.S. and the Chinese system. Well, and, and a, a concern that I see is with, with the Europeans, broadly speaking, being so interested in renewable technologies and things of that nature. You see, obviously, China, while still being the number one global polluter, is also investing a lot in those technologies so that they're producing somewhere at, you know, 70 percent of you know, the solar energy, the hydropower, um, the wind energy. So that's something for us to sort of be be concerned about as well. Those dependencies on Russian gas are sort of now becoming dependencies on on Chinese renewables. James Dolsenberg was when he's, he has a line that I'm pretty sure he said publicly, but he's definitely said it privately. Um, we, we can't let the, the lessons of Russia over the last decade be translated to the next China fight. 
meaning we can't allow the Nord Stream 2s of the world to to kind of uh, impact what our China policy is. And um, it's it's very well put. It's it's simple, but it's it's one that a lesson that I'm not really sure that we're learning. Last question for for you both. Um, and the last time I said this was a softball question, and then they yelled at me and said that it's not a softball question. But it's basically, you know, let's say we get we're now obviously in election season. If we get a Republican administration um, coming into the White House in, in 2025, or if it's even, you know, Biden version two or Obama version three, I guess at that point, um, what is the sort of main priority that you would encourage that administration to adopt as it relates to our interactions with Europe and, you know, getting them um, moving a little bit farther away from China? Start with Ryan. It, it's not an easy question. Um, I, I, I think. First and foremost, would be getting our defense industrial bases um, in the right place and our militaries in the right place to be able to kind of handle uh, a conflict uh, in two theaters at the same time uh, to kind of deal with Ukraine as it's going on, but also prepare and get ready for the, the Taiwan-China fight that many believe are coming. So I think that's that's first and foremost. And then I, I do think that it's um, most useful for us to join and to restrict um, sensitive technologies in key areas from going to China and doing it in unison and uh, locking arms. Peter? I would walk into the Secretary's suite at the State Department and tell Secretary Tully that... Um, I'll be across the river. Uh, Secretary <laughs> Defense Tully that, um, that it's important, I think, to help the Europeans understand that there is cost to the liberal international order, which they so often uh, espouse or like to rhetorically um, roll out. And those costs have to be paid. There's a price to, to, to freedom, to use a cliche, but it's true. And um, to the extent that we can get them to make choices and really choose on sensitive technologies, on raw materials, on all of these issues that will power the Chinese, a country that has little to no innovative power, but lots of um, lots of claws and tensor hooks into Western research and Western foundations and Western operations to, to begin to, not to begin, but to continue to untangle that and make a choice, I think, with the United States. That really is the basic paradigm shift that we have to push for. And if we succeed in that, I'm confident given the size of the European and American economy together with our key Asian partners that we have good chance of being successful at competition. I'd rather be uh, the West than the Chinese. Great. Well, thank you both for being here. It's always good to end on a, on a somewhat uplifting and positive note. So really appreciate your time. Trip. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World. We hope you found today's exploration of competition with China informative and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast to stay up to date on our work and connect with us, subscribe to our newsletter, Beyond the Water's Edge, and follow us on X at, at Vandenberg Co. You can also visit our website at vandenbergcoalition.org for additional resources and exclusive content. Until next time, I'm Carrie Filippetti, and this is the Vandenberg Coalition's Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World.